welcome to the soft matter show this is amal narayanan i am a chemist and a polymer scientist in this podcast we will talk about soft matter science and have fireside chats with the researchers please enjoy the show all right welcome all Today's guest is our very own Dr. Abraham Joy. He is a professor of polymer science at the School of Polymer Science and Polymer Engineering at the University of Akron. He is an outstanding polymer scientist and a prolific researcher. He has raised multi-million dollars in funding, co-founded several companies and received recognitions such as NSF Career Grant, 3M Non-Tenure Faculty Award and so many more. Today, we delve into some of the latest aspect of his research and mentorship philosophy i had an outstanding time and learned so much i hope everyone feels the same now let's get to it welcome abraham yep so one of the common questions that any academicians would think of is that how often do you check your email all the time not good but all the time <laughs> So is there a process that you go through? Is it like Monday you check the most or is it like, wh- how do you distinguish work courses email? I've always tried to see if I can get to a more efficient manner, but I haven't found that sweet spot because sometimes the way to do it is to decide that you're going to do it only, uh, let's say, at defined periods of the, time, of the day. Let's mm-hmm. say you're going to do it in the morning once or maybe in the afternoon once or in the evening before you go to bed and reply to all the emails. On paper, that sounds like a really good plan. <laughs> but in reality, as you get this email from whether it's your chair or a collaborator who needs an answer right away at that minute and not 30 seconds later. And so then you tend to reply to that and then you have something else that comes along at that time and uh, you reply to that simply the best way is to just close your email <laughs> down completely so that it doesn't ping you or tell you that something is coming but uh, isn't that a common problem like is it isn't that like a very most i think most academicians get probably distracted by emails it is, it is. and uh, emails and other distractions and it, it would be really good if you can find a way to uh, discipline yourself but at the same time you know you you can also think that you're also at some point looking for an immediate answer from somebody and you send an email and you would not appreciate it if that person takes their own sweet time mm-hmm. which they can apply in five minutes and they decide to do it only at uh, 10 in the night so you know it's a balanced act of trying to get um a reasonable sense of delay in replying but at the same time not to piss everybody else off so do you think like would if if you want to change at some point would you th- would you think that educating others that your time is valuable would be a good idea i mean for example you could set your you could set your timing or or you can set an automatic reply saying that okay i'm going to respond to my emails between 8 to 10 then 4 to 6 would that do you think that would help or would that be hampering your you know relationship with others yeah you know if you have an automated email that goes to different people um 
if that goes back to the president of the university that you wants an immediate reply to you or from a, somebody else it i don't think there's a perfect answer that's a problem mm-hmm. i think that just the best way is to just give yourself three times between the day to kind of at least reply to, to the ones that uh require a detailed response mm-hmm. if it is a yes or no and it's not too distracting you can reply at that time but if you want a detailed response just discipline yourself to do it two or three times a day and i kind of also try to before i go to sleep to try to make to mm-hmm. answer if i remember all of them <laughs> at least so one of the questions that i would think is that if you have if you're working on a proposal or you know you're working on a paper so when you switch back to your emails like how long do you think it takes back to you to you know come back to the yeah. 100% that you were putting when you started writing that proposal or like when you were in that paper so for me i i think that is a problem and maybe more than for i don't know if it's the same for others but for me for me to get my mind around to coming and as uh, putting all the thoughts together to when you're writing your uh, proposal because so many ideas you have to uh shepherd them towards the idea that you're trying to formulate and it takes quite an orchestration of all these thoughts to put together a thread of um argument or hypothesis that others would find interesting enough to read and so it takes quite some time for me to get to that stage and then when i get distracted it takes quite another amount of time to get back there so for me i really prefer long stretches of undisturbed time when i'm writing something if it's a paper or a manuscript or a proposal especially proposals like okay so since we are talking about ideas and proposals what are the one of the most exciting or like some of the most exciting projects that is some currently in the lab that you are like leading so i think uh, over the past 10 years you know we for the first just uh, we had good ideas of trying to make uh, polymers and this defined set of polymers to address some of the drawbacks uh, of current biomaterials or uh, the deficiencies i would say so i think we've got to that stage where we've showcased some good materials but now we have to really pick certain areas that we think would take us over the next uh, 10 20 years uh to really utilize these materials discoveries into useful biomedical um solutions and i think we are uh we've kind of identified some areas whether it is uh, wound healing and infection control and especially things like uh, protein delivery and some of these materials that we have um uh, found have some very interesting physical properties and so we're trying to use or find those physical understand this physical properties and the behavior in a living system and to utilize those understanding or those discoveries for applications such as you want to uh, deliver complex biomolecules or to bring about um, solutions to uh, clinical problems that have been unsolved for a lot of time for example uh, burn wounds or uh, non-healing wounds adapting wounds it you, usually it seems that it's already solved but if you 
look at the medical uh, needs, there's still so many pe- um, cases or so so much of that field is uh, hasn't moved significantly from 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it's mostly biomaterials is the easier focus of research, I would say. Right? That's what we are. I think uh, as... we grow i think we uh each one of us we kind of gravitate towards what we think where we can make an impact or may uh, and it comes from a deep interest of what is our deep interest in uh, trying to solve a medical problem right there's it it's not that one is better than the other you mm-hmm. can be as someone especially who's coming up uh, and trying to get to his own lab mm-hmm. uh to try to ask the question is what really moves you is it uh discovering fundamental processes reactions and um discoveries and really looking into the details of those fundamental discoveries or is it that you're going to apply some fundamental discoveries to uh unmet whether it's a clinical need or engineering need or a societal need to really look at uh that spectrum if we want to be in the fundamental area or for more applied kind of uh, research and i think our lab is slowly tending towards the, the clinical need mm-hmm. of uh applying some specific uh discoveries that we have to unmet clinical needs okay so i'm asking this because you know you are in a polymer science or polymer engineering school so how does your research which you are trained as a chemist now you are transition into more of a polymer slash biomaterial person so how does how do how do your expertise fit into this interdisciplinary area of research so at first blush it may seem that you're just trying to uh use a polymer for some usual suspect biomedical applications but i think one way to think about is is how do you push this envelope how do you really bring together your expertise in a field uh to for example clinical practice and one field that we have been toying around with uh, lately is can we make biomolecules or synthetic biomolecules precisely to behave more in a natural manner that means uh we know proteins interact with other proteins we also know that small molecules interact with proteins um can we design synthetic macromolecules to approach that type of functionality that means when two proteins interact together they have very specific interactions that occur between the two proteins can we design synthetic materials that have some of that capability of interacting specifically with protein targets and if you can do that then you open up a whole lot of a different field in which now you don't see protein or polymers as inert materials but you're um going across that spectrum where traditionally protein polymers are not supposed to be active ingredients but now you're actually making them to be uh doing a specific function that you've designed it for so right now at that point you're bringing in all the expertise of polymers from a physical point of view from a chemical point of view and now you're applying it to how they can interact in a biological context and i think that there's a really exciting area that a lot of polymer scientists can get into 
can you tell me more about that since here we are talking about the chemical and physical perspective of the polymers so can you tell me more about how your phd or postdoc was work has influenced in in you know in building the lab that you have right now <laughs> my <laughs> journey has been a kind <laughs> of a uh very unconventional one so i remember when i started out as uh you know i remember still coming to this country as a graduate student and all very enthusiastic and uh, full of uh, bright hope <laughs> and everything else uh, but i started out in in a in a program in a department or in a lab where it was very strong in what it did in photochemistry actually but i knew you know at that point also i wanted to do research more in a bio related or the interface between chemistry and biology and so after my phd i didn't really continue as a photochemist i was trying to move across disciplines and uh, then i landed up in a lab where they were doing a little bit of i would say biochemistry a little uh, bit of uh, photochemistry applied to synthetic oligonucleotides so it was somewhat in the bio realm but not really um and i was still very much interested in going e- even more towards in, in a bio realm and trying to start a lab in that but uh even after my after my first postdoc i didn't get a faculty position uh so at that point i realized that if you really want to be in this realm where you're trying to merge chemistry with uh biology chemical biology was usually the usual suspect at the time a lot of people were doing chemical biology or even now i guess but another thing i realized was that polymers if you apply polymers and biomaterials that was a good way to keep what you have in terms of your organic chemistry ex- uh, expertise or your training and your interest in understanding the interactions between chemical molecules and biomolecules and with that i kind of switched fields i went to work in a biomaterials lab and through that experience i think was very pivotal for me to understand how you can not be just a polymer person but or just be a chemist but you have to bring your expertise and show how that expertise affects uh, many other fields right mm-hmm. you so you have to be able to talk to other people from other disciplines and show them how your expertise would be valuable for them mm-hmm. and with that i was able to show how designing molecules can uh influence or can affect positively biomedical sciences and with that interest still being able as chemists i think uh, our nijak or at least organic chemists uh, mm-hmm. uh, we all like to <laughs> make stuff and uh, be creative about making new molecules and i thought that was a good way to uh, try to make new materials and showcase how these new materials have functions that are uh then ca- that can address some of the deficiencies of uh, biomaterials so it is with that idea that i started and i was lucky to get the break at the university of akron mm-hmm. and have a uh, position here and over uh, the past 10 years uh, we have 
I would say evolved a lot because when we started, we were just making materials and making this material and that material. But mm. over time, also because of funding pressures, we realized that we have to focus into uh, a narrow set, a narrower set of uh, discipline or research areas. And it is with that that we've come to uh, areas of uh, wound healing, antimicrobial and protein delivery and uh, 3D printed scaffolds for uh, devices, uh, for tissue engineering applications. So that's in a nutshell <laughs> where the long that, story yeah, that's, is Yeah, that's quite a stretch. You know, like you have, you started as a photochemist, then you moved to sort of a chemical biology, then you moved to biomaterials and now you're in polymers. Yeah. So do you think like is it a good thing to switch or like I think it's a, I think it's a common thing common thing people want to do but it 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 is hard for like people who are from a chemistry pure chemistry background if they want to switch to something like a chemical biology or even biochemistry it becomes harder for them because when you apply for a postdoc they would want people with experience in a certain field so do you think that this switch that you had done over the years has hampered your career in some point or did it do you think it did more help than hampering so just when i look at it from today's perspective i know that it has helped me because i think differently than no um, people who have a classical polymer training but at the same time i you know in my previous response i said i was lucky to get a Mm -hmm. uh, faculty position at the University of Akron. And that really is, uh, I mean that, or I chose those words, because it could have gone any other way. Because mm -hmm. I'm sure if, uh, you know, if I say the names of my PhD advisor and first postdoc advisor in the polymer field, it's, they would not, they may not be recognized or um, the name recognition would not be there, even though in their own field, they're, real, they're really, really big people in their own fields in mm -hmm. photochemistry and bioorganic chemistry. Uh, but when it comes, so that can be a problem because when you start out and you're applying, you, you don't really have mentors in the field who vouch for you or who's, um, yeah, it's not like getting a, a letter from a Nobel mm -hmm. Prize uh, winner in polymers. Mm -hmm. So that, it did, uh, I would say, it does make it more difficult. Uh, but at the same time, if you get that break and if you're resourceful enough to showcase why you're different and why your um, uh, candidacy has to be taken seriously, and once you get that break, then it's all upon you. Right then, it's just uh, then it's uh, your everybody is on the same starting block, and you mm -hmm. can, uh, depending on how creative you are and how resourceful you are and how persistent you are, you can still um, make the impact that you want. And uh, the advice that I give to any, anybody is to look for the long game. That means don't worry about your impact factor in the short term or the number of citations, and uh, think about it. Uh, 20 years down the line, what do you want to be known for, right? If you're just uh, thinking of the number of papers that you've published, in the long run, it doesn't really make any difference. So you have to think of what you've been given an opportunity to make an impact and what's the impact that you're going to make. Is it going to be in training students? Is it going to be in fundamental uh, research or in applied research? Or how are you going to make an impact? You can even be an institution builder. 
But all of these are possible once you have a, a position like this. Yeah, that's very powerful, actually. <laughs> I think so too. So, since we are talking about the the you know the research component, the mentorship component, so I wanted to like I wanted to explore with you how does what are your duties like you know how how does your timeline and the duties coin like you know come together to make the professorship that you have right now so what are the duties that you are involved with yeah so i'm not sure i see it more as duties more than being just role right you are as a faculty member the way i see it is you are responsible for the development of the next generation pure mm-hmm. and simple i guess i think before your own interests and your own papers or grants and all of that it, it the students that you are mentoring is in your hands i mean it's just like your own biological kids it's you have you're responsible for their development so whatever it takes to get them uh to a better place than they were when they came to you is your responsibility mm-hmm. that means you are a professor you're a teacher you're a mentor you're a confidant you're a friend um and all of these you're just a support system for them to be and as i can tell you every student needs a little different approach than the other you cannot have one blanket rule that applies to everybody or one blanket approach that applies to everybody it doesn't work that way so everybody is different and if you have kids you know that you're can have two kids who are completely different from each other and just like that your own uh lab um students are different and so they all need their own tailored approach mm-hmm. and at the end of the day if some if they all come out better you know it, it you feel so much content and that they are in a better place right so i think when the students that come through my lab I, my first priority is that when they graduate that they have positions that they're really happy to go to mm-hmm. and it's not something that they wish they could have had something better right there are that being said during this covid crisis things are a lot different and more difficult uh, but otherwise normally you want them to be in a position that that by, when they graduate they're well equipped to become if uh, efficient and effective at their next position and you've helped them get there mm-hmm. that's what really makes a difference yeah so is there a specific strategy for your mentorship quality or like is there any way you is there any resources that you have used to come this far to be more professional qualities i i don't think there's any prescribed manner mm-hmm. and i i think one as a suggestion uh to any faculty or student or mentor is to put yourself in the shoes of the student right if you were uh being dealt the way or you deal with somebody the way you would like to be treated mm-hmm. so if that student comes to you and they need you know x y and z if they need more time for this or if they need a, a helpful suggestion or if they want to just you to listen that's what you give them and um but at the same time you don't it's not a i'm not saying it's like a free for all that they just are there and after 5 years they come and tell me what they've done mm-hmm. it's uh, it's 
it's the soft touch, but you, they always know that your expectations are still very high. Mm-hmm. If you are there and if you let them know that you're there to support them, mm-hmm. but when they fall or if they fall that you're there to hold them and prevent that, they would be very appreciative of you and they'd always look to do better because they want to look, they want you to be happy with them. And so it's both a, uh, a two-way street, right? You want them to do well and you support them in, uh, in whatever they need. Mm-hmm. And they'll do the same for you whenever they will try to come and give their best because they know that you've given them the freedom to uh, be the best that they can be. Yeah, that is very powerful stuff too. <laughs> so, so you think treating students the way you want it to be, you want yourself to be treated is the right way to go. Yeah, that's interesting actually. So that since we are talking about the the funding pressure thing in the previous part of our discussion so what is your is there a action plan for your is there any way that you plan to get the money or plan to raise the money which is needed for the research as well as the human resources in the lab So this is also something I've uh, it's always an ongoing uh, plan that modifies and uh, refines itself over mm-hmm. time but and this part of it comes from just experience so when i started i thought hey i'm going to make a bunch of polymers and we're <laughs> all going to make all these different polymers and all the funding agencies are going to be really happy that you've made all these things and they're just going to give you a lot of money i couldn't have been more wrong than that there is nobody gives a shit about what you made or how great it is unless you can show that someone cares no one's going to give you money mm-hmm. right so i think that was lesson number 1 that really nobody gives a shit about what you do so you have to show how it changes somebody else's life or it can potentially change somebody else's help someone else and then they'll be willing to give you the money whether that's a fund, federal funding agency or a company so i think over time now uh when we've uh, i would say strategized our projects mm-hmm. into two or three areas and if you have like a lab of 10 or 12 people you have two or three people or three or four people working in each areas so that the results of these two or three students mm-hmm. working in that one area mm-hmm. will give you the preliminary data to write an effective proposal mm-hmm. so that's different from when i first started i you know i was like depending on one student's results to write a successful proposal which never really happen so you mm-hmm. need results from many students to make a compelling argument unless you've been working for 20 30 years and i guess you can put a lot of things together mm-hmm. uh so i think the first lesson is to strategize about what are the important research areas that you're going to go after mm-hmm. and once you do that then you put the personnel in place to get those results and then you put timelines on when they're going to get those uh results that you think this is it may seem like it almost seems like a slave labor that you're putting things in but it's mm-hmm. really not it's everybody's working on their project but you're just kind of being the the manager of the whole orchestration mm-hmm. so that you understand when uh how everybody's work ties together with the project that you're trying to manage mm-hmm. and then also keep in mind that a proposal rarely gets funded the first time yeah right so you have to 
now put it through a second time. So they, we're talking a minimum of two years mm-hmm. from the time you've decided to write the proposal. Mm-hmm. That means from the time you've had the idea and students <laughs> are working, that's another two years before that. Yeah. So we're talking three, four years timeline to get something funded with ideas. So you, so now you, you, let's say you start somewhere and you got this big pot of startup money. You should be planning at that point for mm-hmm. the next proposal yeah. because you've, you're soon going to, ex- uh, that money is going to go away or you're going to go through, the burn through that money. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a well thought out strategy of how you're going to get the next results to fund this next set of uh, students, you'd be in deep trouble. And so that's what we try to do now. Uh, I wish I had uh, had the strategy mm-hmm. 10 years ago, <laughs> but uh, as I said, I was just playing around with chemicals when I started. So, okay. so like, as you said, like uh, there are a lot of rejections. So how do you deal with the rejection? Is it like you get a mail one day saying that, okay, this is not funded. And you spend like this two, three years of thinking yeah. of this will get funded at some point, And you're realizing that like, it's only worth for you, not for them. So how do you manage? How do you deal with this and, you know, progress? Obviously, you're going to throw a hissy fit <laughs> and uh, <laughs> complain about all the reviewers. Reviewer number two. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, that's just... Uh, you just get over it, I guess. There's no other way to put it. You have to develop a thick skin that when the people are complaining or criticizing your work, that it's just some part of the work that they did not understand or appreciate. So it really is upon you mm-hmm. uh, to put in as refined a proposal as possible. Mm-hmm. And um, so, But before that, you, you have to also ask yourself, what is the idea that you're proposing? Is the idea just like what everybody else is doing? Then you know what? They don't have to give the money to you. They can give it to anybody else who's proposing the same stuff, right? So you have to have something that is creative, something that's different, something that's novel, and m- pushing the field that you're working in. Um, you could be on the other end of it. That means you're so far ahead of it, uh, everybody else mm-hmm. that people are not really able to appreciate what you're bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of unfortunate because there are instances where people are really ahead of their time and people realize that only, you know, well, much later. But even then, you have to kind of think of how somebody else is going to review the pair. How are they going to read it? Mm -hmm. Right. So write the proposal such that the reader understands what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you haven't got in the first two pages of why this is a fantastic proposal, you've already lost the reader. Mm -hmm. That means in the first two pages, you have to convince them that this is such a great idea that they will fund it. Mm -hmm. So in that way, like if you think about that, like you have been a reviewer in the, in the different proposals by NSF or even an NIH, I would, I would, I would imagine. So, when you review, what are your strategies? What, 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 is a, what is a proposal? What is the commonalities across different proposals that gets funded ultimately right. have in common? So, sadly, it's not always the best idea that gets funded, right? Mm-hmm. That means sometimes it's just that uh, the f- 
proposal is written so well and so eloquently uh, conveyed the ideas mm-hmm. that you know that if this person is funded, that they will execute the, the work that they're doing, mm-hmm. that they're proposing to do. And that, I think, is what the funding agency is tasked with. If someone proposing an idea has a, does it review well and um, does, do they have the capabilities to do it? Mm-hmm. That's not always how, what moves science, though. It's like uh, if you have the best ideas and if you don't convey it well, you're not going to get funded. Mm-hmm. So when you're writing a proposal, um, f- first you have to have obviously a good idea because if you have a crappy idea, you can be sure no matter how well it's written, it's not going to get. Mm-hmm. So even if it's not the most novel or far-thinking uh, idea, which... Even R01s. R01s are usually just uh, things that you know work and you have a very good team that will do it. And you're m- it's small increments, I would say, mm-hmm. in moving the science forward. But, um, yeah, so uh, grantsmanship is an art that you learn <laughs> over time. And I think that uh, there is no substitute to just doing it and practicing uh, you know, by failing so many times, you just get better at it. And I think one way to think of it is to tell a story, right? If you're telling a story really well, mm-hmm. and then you're saying we have the capability to do what we're saying we're doing, mm-hmm. then you have more than tipped the scales in your favor. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So what happens if, if all the funding that you accept every year gets accepted? <laughs> then what happens? Well, that, that <laughs> usually never happens. Right? If I get 25% of what I write, I'll be really happy. Yeah. So will there be any, like, you know, you had to do a fast recruitment of people to make it happen or? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> In I haven't world. had that, uh, <laughs> I guess. Uh, the trouble. Yeah. That fortunate trouble, I guess. <laughs> Uh, but if it comes to that, yes, that would be the you know mm-hmm. the way to do. It. And I, I've seen other people uh, trying to get uh, postdocs and grad mm-hmm. students in a hurry. Okay. I don't know how good that is if you do things in a hurry. But uh, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure somebody else has that. Problem. <laughs> That's not been my problem yet. So, like, since you are like you had to do a lot of work, you had to be a mentor, you had to be a professor. Like, mean you had to teach. And also you had to write for proposals and papers and things like that. So when did you realize that you are willing to do all these? Right. I think it is, it's just what you like to do. That mm-hmm. means um, if if it is what drives you, mm-hmm. this job is fun. It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. If you really like what, uh, for example, it gives you the freedom to do what you want. Nobody, mm-hmm. I mean, I really don't have a boss in that sense, mm-hmm. right? So I can do whatever I want. If I, you know, if I want to say I'm going to create a spaceship to Jupiter mm-hmm. and if I can convince me <laughs> to do that, then I can do that, right? Yeah. So I don't think there's any other job that lets you do that kind of work and then raise your own team and uh, uh, put things on your own kind of timetable and schedule. So it's a great job. But at the same time, I mean, I don't want to make it sound as if it's cheap labor, even though we do a whole lot of stuff. We're mm-hmm. also kind of, you know, decently well paid. Mm-hmm. But there are people who like social workers who are obviously doing so much more sacrifice in their mm-hmm. 
life just out of sheer uh, desire to help people for mm-hmm. really low pays. Right? So those are really the angels around it. But, you know, so we do it for our interest and sometimes just to pat our own egos, I guess. But hopefully <laughs> it is that because you want to make a difference to the next generation of uh, people who are coming. So was there any tipping, tipping point in your career or like, you know, when you are an undergrad or as you are brought up, is there any past influences which you think is making you, you know, happy in what, you do, what you're doing? So I remember when I was young, I wanted to, when I was, uh, I wanted to be a surgeon. Mm-hmm. And so that never happened. And I think <laughs> I was a surgeon because I think I just like tools, I guess. I think I... And I like the medical stuff. Mm-hmm. But then after that, uh, I realized I like research. And why do I like research? I, I don't really know. I didn't have any, uh, you know, not, nobody that I know in my family was mm-hmm. in research. Or, um, But I like the idea of doing new things mm-hmm. um, and things that are not done. And uh, so I think that's how I mm-hmm. wanted to be in science. And... Then the question is whether you like academia or industry. And mm-hmm. I think when I started, this is what I'm talking a long time ago when I was a grad sc- a student, I felt you have much better um, control or command over your destiny if you're in academia. Mm-hmm. Looking back now, I wouldn't say the same <laughs> because I know a lot of people in industry are, you know, because I you deal with a lot of people from industry and so you see that their life and their choices and their career choices and the amount of impact that they can make is also really uh, influential, really uh, large. So at this point, I wouldn't say that one is better than the other. It's just Mm -hmm. that academics gives you um, a a little bit of command, I would say. And I think I'm kind of a control freak. I like to (laughs) uh, have control over my own destiny and Mm -hmm. not uh, others tell me that this is important, that's not important or, or the like. So I that's why I like academia. I think I can, whatever is you're curious about, you can craft a program to mm-hmm. study. And as long as uh, you can prove to somebody that it's important uh, and impactful, uh, someone is likely to give you the money to study that. And so I just try to tell people to choose fields that you can make an impact in, and that's helpful to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know like that you... While you are growing up, you have switched different countries. You have very interesting stories on where you were born. That is something very interesting that I want you to explain. But uh, my question is like, yeah, how how would you, how would how did those transition in your life uh, helped you in terms of adapting to a new country or even a new state and things like that, like a new lifestyle? Mm-hmm. So, where where were you born, and can you explain from there, everyone that like kind of how how what all are the changes that went through your life? So I was uh, born in Tanzania, and uh, I'm. People <laughs> ask me whether I'm Tanzanian. No, I'm not. I don't. Unlike the U.S., not many countries give you the opportunity to be citizens just because you're born somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm. I was. Uh, I was Indian, I guess. Uh, so I, I was born to Indian parents uh, who mm-hmm. were working in Tanzania, or my dad was, and then he passed away, and then my mom. Uh, started working in Zambia mm-hmm. as a teacher, and she was a teacher in Zambia and Nigeria for uh, good 20, 30 years in Africa. So I, I've 
used to spend my holidays at, in Zambia and uh, then in Nigeria, uh, the long holidays, I guess. But most of the time, other than that, I was I lived away from my parents in in a boarding school. When you think of boarding school, no, this is not Prince An- Edward or <laughs> Prince Andrew boarding school. This is a boarding school of hard knocks. In, it's not Eton. In, uh, no, it's not Eton or any of these fancy <laughs> ones. But it's, it was a good place. So I, uh, you know, when you live in boarding school, you have a lot of friends and a lot of... Uh, you realize that you have to be... You learn uh, relationships very early. That means how to treat people and how to be good with other people. Mm-hmm. Because if you're in boarding school and if you're a nasty person, nobody gives a shit about you. <laughs> they, they would uh, ostracize you pretty quickly. So mm-hmm. you learn to be uh, adjusting. You learn to look out for other what other people feel. Uh, and so you, more than any academics, you just, what I learned is just to, how to deal with people mm-hmm. or to be respectful of others and then I uh, finished till my master's in India and then I came to the US and Mm -hmm. uh, I guess the rest is all history now. (laughs) So like you were in, uh, when when were you in, uh, when when did you come to US? Which year? Long time ago it looks like 95. 95, okay. So compared to like the graduate students coming now like including me, Mm -hmm. so what were the, the type of the you know the difference in magnitude of adapting scale like when you came like if you would have come now what would you have done differently or the same uh i don't i mean i can say how it was for me at that uh-huh. time because now i even though i see you every day <laughs> but i don't really i'm not i can't say i know exactly how it uh-huh. is for you uh-huh. because you probably live in a different uh, have a different experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, I mean, one thing definitely, there was no internet and there was no, mm-hmm. uh, at least it was not like it was mm-hmm. now, right? So I used to spend a lot of time, mm-hmm. a lot of money calling <laughs> my now wife at that time, <laughs> fiance or girlfriend or, uh, mm-hmm. so just to make phone calls, it was, you had to do all of this damn Unix code or whatever it was <laughs> on these computers. Uh, and it was, I think it was, it was different, but I'm not sure it was, I mean, in the big picture, I don't think it was very different because, you know, you go to grad school, you finish the courses and you mm-hmm. finish research and uh, um, it definitely was, I had to write long letters to get a postdoc uh, <laughs> oh, okay. in the mail, I guess. <laughs> uh, so you're that saying that you wrote your postdoc application with your hand? No, no, on the, on the <laughs> computer, though. It was typed. Uh, it was typed. I don't think it was... Uh, there was I could Microsoft be wrong, Word. but maybe... No, maybe it was email. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> but I did remember I applied for quite a few post uh-huh. and nobody wanted me. <laughs> <laughs> because you're trying clearly from photochemistry to something else, I, like, I guess, right? People yeah. was like, who the heck is this photochemist? Put it in the trash. <laughs> but do you think that was a better way of... Like, did that help in any way? Like, you know... Right now, like since there is there are emails, you might be getting n number of right. postdoc applications versus then, like you know, yeah. very few people had the money and the courage right. and the time to, or less co- less number of people uh, applying. Right. I would not say competition because the number of positions has also been increased. Right. So, do you think that was a better way, or like right now is the better way of doing it? No, I mean I I still I'm not I. By nature, I'm not one who goes back and mm-hmm. uh, you know looks back. 
So I'm, I think it's still a better time now. It's just you have a lot more fleeting attention span. And mm -hmm. that's true not just for my kids. It's mm -hmm. true for me too, right? Mm -hmm. You're always... Uh, really, your attention span is not very high. And I think <laughs> if I ask my faculty colleagues or contemporaries, I'm not sure how many of us really ever go through a whole uh, journal of you know, whichever journal it is from mm -hmm. one cover to the other. Before, when I was a grad student, they were hot copy. And you actually went through the whole journal right. from one to the other and read. And it was more of a, I would say, more, at least in my case, at least, a more shorter discipline or uh, more uh, concise or mm -hmm. focused area that you had to, uh, that you were focusing on. Now we are looking at everything from chemistry through polymers to um, biomaterials mm -hmm. to clinical medicine. So it's it's difficult to keep track of all of these things. But still, if you want to make an impact, that's where, where all the exciting sciences is mm -hmm. in the interfaces between disciplines. Mm -hmm. And so you have to learn how to talk these different languages to different to audiences. So one of the things I always imagine is that right now, let's say you are working on something, you're, for, as a chemist, you're making a molecule or making a polymer. So right now it's easier to find out who has done what compared to then. Oh yeah, definitely. Can you like tell me how it was uh, then? Like how do you find out yeah. somebody has made this molecule before or not? Right. So I don't remember the details, <laughs> but I remember this stuff about going to the library and you had these reference, I don't even know what it's called, these reference... Um, chem abstracts is it the abstract book maybe it was it called chem abstract but you had to, before that you know you like if you had a keyword you mm -hmm. had to look in one part of the book which kind of uh, narrows down your search mm -hmm. and then with some information you uh, then you have to go to the all the chem abstract oh in God. detail and so <laughs> you were actually just walking the uh, library aisles with this looking for information and now you can get all the journals you want in the time that it takes you to go through one aisle just to find one damn journal or <laughs> article. So it's different. So definitely I prefer this method than the old one. Yeah, I'm so glad that I'm doing my PhD now instead of, you know, 20 <laughs> years right, ago. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, I had like two more questions before we wrap up. So one thing is like, is there any advice that you have want to give to people who, who wants to come to academics become an academician or like what are your suggestions on people taking up other side other jobs other than industry or just academia so i think academia is still a great profession right i think uh, i look at it as a real um, fortunate opportunity you have to be if you have an academic job you're really fortunate because it is a really small population of people who are entrusted with that task and it's not easy to get and it's really competitive but once you get it it's it's a if you really like it it's a great profession because mm -hmm. you can make an impact not just in your science but you can make an impact a direct impact in um, guiding and nurturing the next generation. Mm -hmm. uh, now, though, with all the funding and all um, challenges, it's really hard to sustain 
the kind of level of research uh, that you want to do, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you really want to do uh, a broad, very broad research program in two, three different ways, uh, two, three different areas with far-reaching consequences. Mm -hmm. But let's say because of funding, you are restricted to be in one area or in not even an area that you're really happy about at that time, what do you do, right? Mm -hmm. So then suddenly becomes like a buyer's remorse. So you have to think about it from the, uh, the idealistic standpoint of a faculty position and the practical standpoint of sustaining that. Mm -hmm. So you, if you're thinking about going to, you ask yourself, do I want to be a person whose focus is more towards research. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then there are certain type of programs, certain types of schools that you need to land up in. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you want to be more of a teaching kind of faculty, mm -hmm. which you are directly influencing the education and productivity of uh, especially undergraduate students, mm -hmm. then that may be a different pathway. That means you go to programs, you get trained in teaching skills, you go, and then you go to institutions that really train those type of students, mm -hmm. right? And as I see it with, especially in the U.S., I'm not sure if it's the same in everywhere else, but in the U.S., I see this bifurcation becoming stronger mm -hmm. over the next uh, 10 years or so, where you will have research increasingly concentrated on, uh, in schools with large research infrastructures mm -hmm. and large uh, research pools of money mm -hmm. and teaching where the primary focus is on teaching and training undergrads being uh, towards certain other institutions. So just as an example, you can, let's say, in a particular state, you can have one university that the state designates as this is the research institute or the research university of the state mm -hmm. and the others are where undergraduates or go for getting a very good undergraduate education mm -hmm. uh, peppered in with research experiences that help their education mm -hmm. right and because the way research is structured in the u.s right now i i personally i'm not being pessimistic i'm just being realistic i don't think we can sustain the research enterprise that we have currently in every university that we have. So there's going to be this bifurcation that's mm -hmm. increasingly going to become evident. Mm -hmm. uh, because right now, I don't think the U.S. can compete with um, other countries like mm -hmm. China or mm -hmm. where they put so much money into research. And you're going to just, the uh, U.S. is just going to stand by and watch mm -hmm. um, every other place just overtake them. So they have to be strategic investments um, and pick out what you want to be good at and then support those. So, mm -hmm. so first of all, there has to be more money in research uh, and funding, but it has to be strategically invested uh, mm -hmm. to get the outcomes that you want to get. Okay. Yeah, that that is everyone's dream, I think. So <laughs> is there a not-to-do list for you? Is there anything which you don't do as an academician or like which... I don't know. It, it could be anything, maybe personal or even professional things that you choose not to do. Uh, huh. This may sound, you know, because I, <laughs> I don't have a Facebook account because <laughs> of, uh, as a state employee, basically, I 
you know, I, the Facebook, I think, has more chance than Twitter to have uh, unwanted postings or unwanted mm-hmm. things. So I, I just don't even have something like that. So, you know, things like that. And mm-hmm. um, uh, so you just have to be careful. And for example, if I'm, <laughs> if I, 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 even outside the campus, I am aware that I'm an academic in a state university. You mm-hmm. don't want your, uh, name in the papers for the wrong reason, right? <laughs> if somebody is uh, uh, cutting me off in traffic or driving <laughs> crazy in front of me, I may want to flip them off, but I don't because I remember I'm <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, would you like to say a little bit more, a little bit about the University of Akron and its uh, School of Polymer Science and Polymer Engineering for people who do not know about it or like people who wants to you know come to the to the uh, graduate or yeah we only have graduate program so for people who have, who are not aware of the school of polymer science and polymer engineering at the university of akron so uh university of akron and its school of polymer science and polymer engineering is is one of the premier educational and research institutions in this field uh, throughout the world and for those who don't are not in polymers or polymer science polymer engineering they may not even know about this program or the school and frankly i didn't know about the school when i was in grad school i was not even anywhere related to polymers and mm-hmm. i was a chemist and i didn't even know where akron is forget about the school <laughs> of polymer science right so <clears throat> because of the lack of uh, teaching polymers or polymer science in the undergraduate curriculum a lot of people don't know about polymers mm-hmm. But those who know it really know that this place is historically one of the premier places. And we s- started teaching rubber chemistry in like 1910 or something. Mm-hmm. And then during World War II, Akron being home to uh, synthetic rubber uh, endeavor, just like the Manhattan Project, there was this effort to bring about synthetic rubber. Mm-hmm. And University of Akron, polymer science obviously did not exist at the time, but mm-hmm. there was in the region the effort of academics and uh, industry to bring about the rubber, uh, synthetic rubber. And from that developed the uh, rubber program and then became what is now the Palmer Science and Engineering Program. Um, and over the years, industry has been deeply tied to the program. And th- because of this history and tradition, the faculty, even now, even people like me who are not traditional polymer chemists, are well-versed in polymers and we train our students and we beco- and we give them a very strong foundation in polymer science and polymer engineering. Mm-hmm. And hence, our graduates are very highly sought after, both in academia and industry, mm-hmm. when they come out. They're very, really well-trained students. Uh, just like you, you're going to <laughs> Princeton now. And so... <laughs> You know, so it is because of your training here and uh, what you have been able to showcase, right? So, um, yeah, I completely agree to that statement that like, if this is some uh, like advice I give people who are like, you know, undergraduates in chemistry or physics or who are interested in the field of soft matter or in polymer science, mm-hmm. like one of the things I say is that like, if you want to have a career, you should do something more than chemistry. So if you just want to have a, you know, want to learn more, maybe chemistry would be a better place to go. 
but if you want to have a ca- career which is mostly the goal of right. one of the goals of being in a gradu- graduate school mm-hmm. so yeah that's one way to think about it and i also tell that okay Poly- school of polymer science at akron is one of the best place to be in for polymer science research right. so yeah with that i would like to conclude and i would like to thank you for your time and i, w- I want to tell you i want to wish you all the best for getting all the all the fellowships or or all the pr- proposals that you have just uh, you are writing on right now so is there anything conclusive you want to say or is that all yeah thank you thanks for yeah. this uh, opportunity <laughs> but i want to ask you now what is your plans <laughs> now when you go to princeton and future yeah m- my plan is to you know stick around in academia itself so far but i want to be my goal is that i want to be more than an academician so like i i would definitely want to go to a university and i would love the fact that i could get to be a mentor to people or the next generation but also i want to make up make an awareness in the common public as well as to people from underprivileged backgrounds to be aware of the possibilities of research because mm-hmm. i came from a background that that or family which has i mean literally no post graduates i would say like no one with a masters or no one with a you know phd so i want to make sure that like it is available for everyone so yeah that is one of the goals i have eventually i want to catch up with that to mm-hmm. you know that this is also like this is actually a passion project of mine doing this po- podcast mm-hmm. to make sure that like if i can do it and show that like if i can do it then someone Everybody. some other <clears throat> amal narayanan from some other part right. of the country or some other country can also do it so yeah with that i would like to thank you once again and yeah all the best thanks thank you well goodness yeah. uh, best to you too all the best to you thank you that's it for today guys thank you see you next time if you want to learn more about the soft matter show go to the softmattershow.com that is d h e s o f t m a t t e r s h o w .com or you can write to me at amalnarayanan@thesoftmattershow.com thank you guys